Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And right off the top, I want to say a big thank you uh, to everyone who sent notes and emails and LinkedIn's and tweets and Facebooks, etc., of appreciation for our last episode with Pastor Dave Ferguson. You know, I'm really glad to hear how many of you enjoyed the conversation, how uh, Pastor Dave seems to have sparked some powerful dialogues for many uh, with your family and your friends. Um, As you know, all of us around here, we believe in the power of real conversations to make a real difference. And it was great to see that so many people got so much from that last episode. And if you are sharing that episode with your friends and family and loved ones and um, uh, with your church or uh, whatever uh, religious group you might be associated with or whatever religion you believe in, uh, I also want to thank you for that. It seems to have sparked a real um, conversation about theology, um, which is also very cool. I also want you to know that um, I deeply appreciate the notes of support for me and our family as we continue to grapple with some of the worst circumstances that any family has to deal with. Um, It's an incredibly, incredibly trying time of uh, walking through much fire for us. And so um, thank you for your love and support. And um, I'm doing my best to respond to all of the social media and emails that are coming in. Um, And if I haven't been able to respond just yet, um, I do want you to know your words of support, uh, your love and support is wonderful. And so uh, thank you. It means a lot, uh, not just to me, but to our whole family. Okay, on this episode, a legendary conversation about schools and education. This is a topic I don't think is getting enough attention right now. And so uh, with us on this episode is the author of a great book called What School Could Be, Insights and Inspiration from Teachers Across America. And his name is Ted Dintersmith. And if you're a longtime listener, you might recall Ted was with us uh, in 2019, uh, shortly after his book came out, and um, I wanted to have him back. And this is a special two-part series we're doing um, aimed at shining a light on uh, two of the seminal problems that have been caused by the C-19 crisis, and in my opinion, frankly, are not being talked about enough and are not being talked about in uh, a thorough Uh, rigorous, uh, thoughtful way. And those two issues are education and entrepreneurship. So on our next episode, uh, you'll hear from professor of economics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Professor Rob Fairley. He's an amazing guy. He's done some fantastic research on the impact of C-19 on entrepreneurial businesses and what I think is a horrible, disproportionate impact the crisis is having on entrepreneurs and business owners of color and women uh, entrepreneurs and business owners. So that's coming up next. On this episode, Ted, he's a former legendary VC uh, turned author. And uh, when he wrote his great book, he came on the podcast. We had an amazing conversation. And one of the cool things that Ted did in writing his book is he visited some 200 schools in every state in the United States to gain some insights on what the greatest educators in the U.S. do. And I've been thinking a lot about school, as I know many of you have. 
Uh, I know uh, uh, parents who are looking at a school year that's very uncertain right now. Some schools haven't even declared if they're going to do in-person or, or, or hybrid home and in-person. or It's still very much in flux. And I know Ted's been talking to a lot of the top educators in the country. And I was hoping to get his insights. With us standing on the edge of the new school year here, how do we make this work? How do we figure out how school works in this new reality? And Ted has some powerful insights and some great ideas about that. And we even get into how to make what might be the weirdest school year in modern history an opportunity to reimagine school and reimagine learning. So if you care about our future, if you care about kids, if you care about education, I think you're going to love this conversation with Ted. Pay special attention to his ideas on how to tap into the intrinsic motivation of kids to spark their learning. And he shares a story that is uh, really spectacular about how one school used teaching rap music to produce a breakthrough in learning results. Go to Lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode. Learn more about Ted's awesome book and uh, get the key takeaways. While you're there, subscribe to our newsletter, The Difference. And we're sponsored by my friends at Oracle NetSuite. Check out NetSuite.com slash different today for more on the world's number one cloud business system. My friends at Splunk help you bring data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two the letter E. And my friends at Crash are the new way to get hired. So if you're looking to turbocharge your career, visit crash.co slash different today. Now, hey ho, let's go. Great to be back. How things have changed. Yeah, it was. How, you know, I've thought about your book a lot since we talked, and in particular since all of this business started. And, you know, the title of your book, of course, How School Could Be. Am I remembering that right? Uh, what School Could Be. Yeah. What School Could Be. And um, I'm like, wow, what could school be now, Ted? <laughs> so that's maybe we can start there. Yeah. Well, it's in a broader context, but in the, the specific context of school, and I've been circling back with a lot of the people I wrote about, you know, they had intentionally transferred more voice to the students. So the kids they work with were really good pre-COVID on identifying what they wanted to learn, turning that into an initiative they wanted to create, create kind of managing their own time and drawing on appropriate resources, other adults, online stuff. And then sticking with it until they produce something they cared about. And in my book, with no sense of a, a looming pandemic, I said, that is a really important skill for adults. And you look at when that's been an intentional part of what's going on in the school, those kids are engaged. They're learning deeply and joyfully. The role of the teacher is different, but much more fulfilling. And I sort of said, that is a, that's something we should admire and celebrate. Well, you know, now when you can't be in school, what happens? And when I circle back with people who had pursued that approach, which I wish were everybody, but it's a, it's a certainly a, more of a sliver in the education world than the majority. They said, hey, our kids miss being in school. They miss their friends. Uh, they miss their activities. But they didn't stop learning at all. If anything, they, they may have learned more than they were before. Hmm. And, and when you were 
more in the traditional model where somebody's talking at you, you're taking notes, you're memorizing for a short-term exam. That's a very difficult mission for a teacher in person, but trying to do it virtually, oh my gosh. You know, and then you just saw this massive disparity. And it's one of the themes I think we're seeing in the last four or five months is how it's accentuated all of these inequities and disparities in society. And it's certainly true that not many people talk about the pedagogy gap, but there's a massive difference between, to use a, an analogy, kids who had learned how to fish versus kids that were good fish eaters. And when you, even in normal times, making kids eat fish didn't work for that many kids, but now making kids eat virtual fish, <laughs> good, good luck. <laughs> but if the, if the kids were good at fishing, whether they were in school or at home, even if they didn't have access to digital resources, which certainly is a massive challenge and an issue we failed to come to grips with, but with or without, they still push their way forward to learn things and get good at things. And so I think it's sort of been the Dickens, you know, best of times, worst of times, but, but maybe a lot more of the worst of times. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly there are some positives, but maybe before we go there, I just let me share with you what, what I've been worried about. And, and that is that women and mothers have been disproportionately uh, affected in a negative way by all of this business. And informally, anyway, the, the, the mothers that I've been talking to in my life, I've sort of asked them, you know, roughly as a percentage of your normal, how much more water are you carrying as a result of all of this? And I hear numbers like 25 to 50% more. And you know, the scenarios that I see, I see uh, moms who um, now have a, a husband who's working from home or a husband who's lost his job. We see, of course, homeschooling now. So mom's got to be not just tutor, but in some ways professor as well, or principal of the school or whatever analogy you want. And of course, uh, feeding a family has gotten more expensive and, and more challenging. This summer, I, a lot of the moms that I know uh, were incredibly bummed that, you know, their kids weren't going to be able to do the normal sorts of activities that they did. And that puts more pressure on the moms as well. And I know, Ted, some women who are, I, I would call them warriors. I mean, just incredible, powerful women who cried with me when they found out those their kids are now, after all that, are not going back to school in September. And so as you think about sort of this, this time that we're in and this whole new dynamic in the household with the home turning into the school and what it means for our moms, sort of how do you think about all of that? <laughs> well, it's, it's the, the, the real hardship and, and your point is exactly right. I mean, I, I talk to reach out to a lot of people involved, teachers. Uh, administrators, parents, students. Um, can you imagine a time of higher anxiety, more stress? And particularly, you know, it's, it's this is where the inequity is getting magnified, right? I mean, you're, you're a family with plenty of resources and it's maybe inconvenient. Maybe it's not what you want. Maybe you can grouse a little bit about it, but generally they can put things together in a way that works reasonably well. Now you're a single parent holding two jobs and you've got a three, five and a, and a seven-year-old. I mean, how does that work, right? How does that work? And so these are real challenges. And I think a lot of people, you know, it's, it's like the mindset you have when you think it's going to be a couple months 
but surely by the summer we'll be through this. You know, it will magically disappear once the temperatures go up and we'll be fine next school year. And now suddenly we're staring the school year right in the face. And I often say they'll be by and large, not true everywhere, but two types of schools, the schools that don't reopen and the schools that try to reopen and then quickly shut back down. And, you know, you can be in some locations in the country where the virus is quite under control, so that won't be true for them. But most kids are going to be start, stop, chaos, hassle. You think you've made one plan and it changes. This is real hardship. And, and it's not like we can just snap our fingers and say, oh, yeah, if we just do X, we're fine. I mean, it is a code red crisis. Well, that was my uneducated assessment of the situation, and you have a very much more educated assessment. So the fact that it's yours, too, is confirming and a giant bummer. And so if I'm a, um, a school principal or if I'm an executive in a school system or a school, if I'm a teacher, what advice would you have for me on, okay, so... In most parts of the United States, plus or minus, uh, you tell me, uh, being physically in school is not going to happen or not going to be possible. In the September semester, there is the high potentiality, I would assume, that that will again be true in the January semester. Or let's say this, if I was a teacher, principal, executive, planning that it was all going to be magically good on Jan 1 is probably dumb. So I, right now, as a school leader of one sort or another, uh, am I right, Ted, in assuming that I have to wrap my mind around how we care for these kids, how we educate these kids for essentially a whole school year uh, in a distanced, uh, you know, digital way? Is that is that where my head should start? I, I would, if you plan for it to be the entire school year and we get some magic vaccine that everybody views as safe, you know, definitive, and uh, is massively rushed to the market in an effective way. Maybe it's not the entire school year. But, but if I were in the shoes of these people trying to plan out the future, first, I'd have a, an enormous amount of empathy for them. I mean, I, I can't even begin to stress how difficult of, of the scope of decisions that have to be made. You think about the person, whether it's a principal or superintendent or head of a private school, the person who's on the hot seat to decide what the reopening plans are. I mean, tell me the winning announcement. You know, it, it, you know, it, it is complex. It's uncertain. You know, people perceive risk of lives of their kids, even though I think in some ways, uh, if you look at the data, when we could talk about that in a second, I mean, the, the risk is a lot more what gets carried back to families and what teachers are exposed to, but they're risk and they're not getting a cold risk. They're, you know, life and death risk for some people. And so you think about this and you say, how do you do it? Particularly, and I'd underscore a couple of things. One is, even if you had a great plan to reopen, it requires money. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just start marching through everything that has to be done safely for you to say, here's our plan to reopen. Here's an effective transportation plan. Here's an effective disinfectant plan. Here's how we're going to staff uh, classrooms with half the number of students. Here's how we're going to have nurses on call. I mean, you look at everything that's required, and then you say, oh, and by the way, do it with even fewer budget dollars because state and local budgets have been hammered. I mean, my gosh, who, who, who can, I mean, we can ask a lot of our teachers and they step up and do a lot. We can ask a lot of our administrators, but I, I don't think we can ask them to 
put somebody on Mars on you know a dollar seventy five budget or something. And so, so that's really hard. I think if you step back and, and take a deep breath and start to look at the data, the reality of the situation, and everything else, there are a couple things that I think are points to focus on. I mean, first, even though and I understand, I've, I've got kids that fortunately are out of K through twelve, but I'm a parent, so I can relate to this. Is if you're a parent, you are paranoid about what might happen to your kids. If you look at the data for the real risk for, for kids, it's tiny. You know, you know, there's, there, there's a bigger risk that your child will die from choking on food than there is from the, the virus, right? And, and nobody's running around saying, I'm going to not let kids eat food because they might choke to death. You know, it, it's, there's some low-level thing. So if you look at how many kids... Let me, I, I, I hate to interrupt you, Ted, but let me poke at you a little. Sure. You know how much time I spent in epidemiology or, for that matter, medical school. So, <laughs> caveat, caveat. The one thing I worry about that that we can't know from a lot of the data, and in this regard, data around children, is if a child gets COVID, we're hearing these stories of, of mothers now uh, birthing children with COVID. To the best of my reading, let me say it that way, we don't understand what the potential long-term impacts could be. Is there some uh, immune system damage that gets done? Is there some other? Uh, and then there was that weird rashy thing that seemed to get in the news for a while that kids were getting as some kind of a, a result of COVID. So anyway, I hear what you're saying, but I, I at least for me, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a committed uncle, but that's close, right? There's still, I still love lots of children. I'm just worried about even if a child gets COVID and they're not even symptomatic, maybe they just blast through it, they test positive and a few weeks in and then they're gone and it's all fine. I'm still concerned that we just don't really know. It's, you know, if you think back to the early days of HIV AIDS, you know, there's just so much we didn't know about uh, about an emerging virus. And so, I don't know, maybe you know things that give you more comfort. I'll be curious. But uh, aren't you at least a little concerned um, uh, about what the long-term impact could be on kids? Well, absolutely. It's that context of the uncertainty. So, so if you look at what's happened to date, the number of young kids that have died is tiny. Do we have a handle on long-term? No. Do we have a handle on... We actually have some data, thanks to South Korea, on the ability of young kids to transmit. And, you know, that's, you know, that's a risk. I mean, it's absolutely a risk for teachers in the school, for the support staff in the school. Am I right? If I remember that stuff, I mean, I I seem to remember it being quite eye-opening at the time that um, these asymptomatic kids could be quote-unquote super spreaders. Is Is that what you're referring to? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, I think the South Korea result, which was a seemed like a decent study. Again, I've, I've got as, every bit as much of an epidemiology background as you do. Um, but it was like age 10 and above, think of them as adult spreaders. Age zero to nine, seems like it's about half as likely. But, but half as likely is not zero. I would say, by the way, this, this discussion about what we know about kids and COVID, I would say it's going to be a very parallel discussion to what we have when the first vaccines come out. Do we know what it does long term? Do we know it does it give you complete immunity or partial? Does it last for, you know, six months? But, you know, it's like, and so all the, the, the sense of once that vaccine is out or the first, you know, first ones that look promising are out, that it's all behind us, that won't happen, right? And so, yeah. you know, so, so it's, as I said, it's just, there's, it's just 
fraught with uncertainty. But, you know, I would say this, I would say, you know, drawing on the people I talk to, the experts I'm listening to, the need for young kids to be in a school environment is higher than the, the middle and high school kids. The burden on families that have to support five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds at home is higher. And so if you start to rank, you know, sort through priorities, yeah. you probably want to be looking at what are the, you know, instead of treating all kids the same, what can we do to get the younger kids back sooner? And going in your favor is they seem less likely to transmit. How do we staff those kids with younger adults who are less likely to, you know, uh, face a life-threatening result from being around those kids? And then what can we do? And this is, I think, one of the biggest opportunities. What can we do with kids of any age? Kind of along the lines of what I wrote for them in my book is what can we do to help them, you know, take on learning challenges where they can run with it a lot on their own? You know, it's like, like you think about uh, a lecture environment. You know, for every hour a student's in a lecture, the teacher's in the lecture for an hour. And I would say, actually, the student learning in that is some number of minutes. might actually be a small number of minutes. Whereas if a teacher tees up a really interesting challenge for a kid that the kid gets interested in, or the kid has a strong voice in it, you know, sometimes an hour of teacher time, or even 15 minutes of teacher time, can lead to multiple hours of student time, uh, student-engaged learning time. And to me... Mm -hmm. You know, the, the framing I love to use on this is, what do we care about more? Are our kids learning or what are they learning? And traditional school is a lot about laying out what kids have to learn. You know, like it's all in your textbooks. It's in the state-mandated curriculum. And it's, I think there's this sense of belief that when they study something, they've actually learned it. Yet we live in a world where two-thirds of adults can't name the three branches of government. You know, like, I mean, I just... What? I'm, what? What, what did you just say, Ted? This is two thirds of adults in America cannot name the three branches of government. Well, let's see. There's the olive branch. <laughs> um, is it, would you say a tomato grows on a branch or is that more of a vine? I think that may be a <laughs> How the fuck can that be true, Ted? It, it's stunning. You know, it, and, you know but, it, but is it surprising, right? You know, you look at AP U.S. history, which a lot of people think is the pinnacle of history study in our K-12 system, spends, you know, less than a class period on the Constitution. You know, I mean, if you're racing from 1491 to present, covering every smidgen of U.S. history, and then using AP U.S. history flashcards to cram for the exam, you know, what comes out of it? So, but, but not to lose a thread is if, if you can lever adult time with engaged student learning and let them go deep on things they care about. I think it's, it's much better. And I, I, I never claim to be an education expert because I really trust our classroom teachers. But, you know, for my kids, when they were in grade one through eight, we homeschooled maybe three of those eight years. And initially I was like, well, what would they be doing in normal school? We're going to replicate that. And it's, it's kind of a battle when you, even with young kids, when you say you've got to read this book or you got to do, you know, you got to do this because, you know, particularly the kind of kids I admire, the ones that have some independence of thinking and some oomph to them, it's like they don't really want to be told this is exactly what you want to do. And once we sort of said, oh, okay, we get that. And then we'd say, which is a question very few kids are ever asked in school, which is, what do you want to learn? What are you interested in? 
And these kids all have things they're interested in. Hang out with some five-year-olds. They are like, they have a million things they're interested in. And you say, what are you interested in? And then support them to go deep on it. But as an adult, teacher, parent, classmate, you know, take, as they go into it, that interest and try to broaden it to adjacent fields. You know, like, what's the math angle of this? What's the science angle of this? What's the history of it? I'll give you an example. The guy who beat Elliot Engel in New York State, Jamal Bowman. Okay, so this is worth talking about. So Jamal takes over this failing grade six, seven, and eight school in what could be the poorest area of the New York City district, which is a vast district. And these were just kids. I mean, they weren't kids whose parents were driving in 45 minutes or signing pledges that were going to do drills at home at night or whatever. They're just kids who don't like school or haven't tested well. And so Jamal comes in and says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have this school focused on rap music. Well, you know, like the, the bureaucrats go crazy. Like you, you're ruining these kids' life prospects. I mean, rap music, that's not what school is all about. You know, so this school where everyone was aghast, you know, like letting these kids study rap music, you know, that what a dead end. You would never, you're never going to help these kids learn what they need to learn. And it got on my radar screen because I think it's five years ago, six years ago, they had the highest single gains in test scores of any school across the biggest school district in the country. It's probably the world. And why? It was because these kids wanted to be in school and they trusted the adults, the teachers, even support staff, everybody who's leaning in. You know, a kid's interested in rap. That's a window to language arts because a lot of rap actually has very powerful and beautiful language behind it. You know, uh, the math of beats, the physics of percussion, the history of rap. And so these kids, while they may not be learning the progressive era, they're learning how to think like an historian because they're going in and understanding how rap came about. They may not be learning factoring polynomials, but they're learning the math behind beats in a way that gets them to be math fluent, which is, you know, like, what's our goal, right? Kids comfortable with math or kids that do, can do toy procedures that photomath does instantly. And so I just think it's a powerful reflection of what happens if you start with what does a kid want to learn, tap hmm. their intrinsic motivation, empower the adults to broaden an interest level to adjacencies. And not dwell on the fact that a kid isn't learning exactly what the classmates learn. Maybe even level, you know, lever that up by letting kids teach each other. Here's my presentation on the history of rap. And somebody else has a very different take on it. They present it to, to their classmates as well. It's, it's night and day, you know, it is the antithesis of standardized. You know, we, we, if the college board, you know, group intelligentsia you know, were listening to this, they'd say, oh, you know, he's got it all wrong. What a mistake. They're like, <laughs> we're missing this, this important tip you know like like a kid might get all the way to high school and not learn how to balance a chemical equation i mean like you're you're ruining their future <laughs> like i say like really you know, like like show me some evidence by the way and this may give people some level i'm not sure if it makes them feel better or worse but whenever i ask for evidence that students even the a students have actually retained what they've learned the evidence is either discouraging or doesn't exist so this is fascinating. There's a whole bunch that you said. I want to maybe key in on two, two big pieces that went off in my mind. You said tap into their intrinsic motivation. So I'm a child who loves rap music. I'm naturally drawn to it. I connect with other 
kids my age who are naturally drawn to it, we study that. So that's interesting. And then at the front end of, of, of somewhere in this section of our conversation, you made the statement, what are they learning as a question as distinct from are they learning? And so I just want to make sure I'm learning what you want me to learn here, Ted, which is yeah. there's an aha here that if you connect those two things, intrinsic motivation and and f- the framing of a uh, two different conversations, what I think I'm hearing you say is the pathway to broad learning is focusing on are they learning more and less on what are they learning? And if they're learning about the history of rap music and that opens a door to math or English or music or whatever other thing, then that's awesome. Yep. And, if, you know, so, so why wouldn't we do that? And we wouldn't do it because if one student's excited about rap and another's excited about insects and another one's excited about sports or something, then they're not studying the same thing. And so if we want to standardize, you know, that's the whole thing about standardized education. If you want to measure students, rank them against each other, rank a district against other districts, rank a state against other states, rank a country against other countries, you need them to more or less study the same things for the same test. And then if you think about trying to administer these tests in bulk, you know, you need to sort of dumb them down. And, and so mm-hmm. you look at, I mean, I go after with a vengeance uh, math, and it's always a bit of a downer when I talk to audiences of educators, because some of them are high school math teachers. And, and I say, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that we have kids still studying math that almost no adults use. And, and why do we do that? And we do it because those little tiny 30 to 45 second problems, like factor of math, you know, polynomial, or uh, it's not... 45 seconds to do a closed form integral by hand. Calculus is a perfect example. You know, those are great fodder for the standardized test designers. So you look at the SAT, the math section, which is half of your score, is chock full of stuff that very few adults use. Uh, mm-hmm. No legislator could pass it, is my bet. And the photo math does instantly. <laughs> and, and so I, I say, like, what how does this make sense? When, by the way, I mean, I've got, I spent way too much time in school, but I, I, uh, I got a PhD in applied math. It's uh, kind of have some sense of understanding of this. And there's a ton of creative conceptual applied math we could do starting with financial literacy. It would be actually really useful. This is, you're on one that I don't understand to this day. How is it possible that a, a kid can graduate high school in the United States of America and not understand what a checkbook is, not understand what a bank account is, not understand what a credit card is. If you look at one of the things that gets all of us in trouble, and particularly young people, they go to college, there's all these credit cards being thrown at them, all this stuff. They don't know how to manage a, a, a household. They don't understand about, hey, uh, rule number one, spend less than you make, right? <laughs> so they don't understand any kind of financial planning or what a 401k is, or, you know, I could go on, but let's just call it basic family life, personal family financial literacy. How, how is it possible we, we graduate people with none of these skills? And, of all, and I agree with everything you mentioned, but let's add one important thing. They don't understand what it means 
to take on 25K a year of student loan debt, particularly <laughs> if you get behind in your payments and compound interest at a high rate kicks in. And, and so when I talk to these young adults, you know, 25-ish years old, I, you know, I'll ask them, like, how'd you get here? Why do you have, how much student loan debt do you have? And they'll often say, I don't know, let me check. And then they'll get back to me. But, you know, they're, they, they've got 100K of student loan debt. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, well, how did you get here? And they say, you know, they just told me, sign this form, it'll all work out. You know, this degree will be worth it, blah, blah, blah. But we skip over financial literacy, you know, like, which anybody needs. And by the way, not just that they need, kids think it's interesting, right? I mean, it's actually relevant, interesting. And the, the math behind financial literacy, you know, and you can go pretty far, right? You know, it's, it's not just fundamental core math operations, it's ratios, which is about where everybody's adult use of math tops out. But, you know, compound interest, exponential functions, you start to get into investment strategy and portfolio, and you get into probabilities. I mean, you and I, we, we could, in an hour, whiteboard three years of great high school math all around financial literacy that would be useful later in life, relevant and interesting to kids, that would tap into almost all the core concepts. Why aren't we doing that? You know, and, and I think it's because that's a lot of work for our test companies. And they just sort of say, like, why do we want to sign up for more work? And, and honestly, and you know this, I mean, the really interesting math is where there's no clear answer, right? It's, it's, and we're seeing it with the pandemic, right, by the way, is finally people hear about math models. And, and they're wondering, like, well, what the hell is, what the heck is a math model? And you realize there's all sorts of uncertainty and, and elaborate, you know, efforts to, to think through the assumptions. And, you know, it's just sort of a whole wealth of insight I think we're getting to the kind of math I think our kids should be comfortable with. But instead, to this day, to this day, if, if a kid, a good student at a high school in America goes to their guidance counselor and says, should I take statistics or should I take calculus? The, the answer is definitely take calculus. That's what colleges want. And when you do, as I have, given keynotes to college admissions officers, I'll ask 250 admissions officers, is there anybody in this room that would prefer a kid to take statistics and not take calculus? The answer is zero, right? Zero. And, and I'll tell them, I'll say, you know, like, I, I spent six years trying to find one adult in America who does the low-level mechanics of high school calculus. I've yet to find one, not at Boeing, not at 3D solid modeling companies. You know, I did hyperbolic cosine transformations to do closed form integrals. I took AP math, you know, calculus and got, you know, a five on it. I could do that. But I also knew nobody does it anymore. And statistics is so much more interesting. And, you know, it's invaluable for citizenship. It kicks into personal decisions and it um, really opens career doors. But statistics taught right is really creative and interesting. I mean, think about uh, Moneyball, right? How many kids in middle and high school like sports? I mean, lots, not all, but lots. You know, you look at Moneyball, where Billy Bean came up with cre- a creative, different statistic that gave him an edge that yielded insight that he wouldn't have otherwise if he just used traditional measures. Man, that's fun. That's interesting. You know, but, and I think back to sort of these times, I mean, like, you know, it's not a coincidence. I, I don't have his name off the top of my head, but one of the best sources for information about the spread of COVID was done by a 17-year-old kid in Washington State. And, and when they did an interview with the kid, the kid was a pretty mediocre, maybe even bad student. You oh, know, I read stuff. about this kid. 
you know, but, but suddenly he was interested, right? It's like we just forget that if you ignore student engagement, board students don't learn. And board students on the other end of the Zoom call for five hours really don't learn. Now we're really getting somewhere, right? So let's say I'm a, I'm a parent. And I'm now uh, I'm now co-educating my children in a way that I, I didn't expect to. And they're now they're home and they're going to be home for two semesters and maybe even more. Who the hell knows where all this thing's going? How do I think about helping my child through the next year? And specifically, Ted, can I flip my headset? Let's say I have a headset or a mindset that says, ah, fuck. You know, this is going to suck. And why are we paying taxes for schools? And, you know, all of the negative about this and the time sink that it is. And, you know, for some families, it's a it's a food issue as well. I mean, there's a lot that goes around this. So let's say I was able to change my mindset and say, okay, wh- what if this was an opportunity to have a breakthrough in, in learning for my child? And actually, what if this was a blessing in disguise insofar as there there might be a way that this is this is a more powerful paradigm for creating a successful, happy, highly functioning adult. If you say that's the objective of education, or at least yeah. in part. So, so how do I, as a parent, dealing with this, say, okay, Ted's right. One of the things I remember most about your book and about our conversation is this notion of giving children agency. This this notion of tapping into the intrinsic motivation. This 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 idea of are they learning versus what are they learning? How can I apply these concepts, these ideas to trying to turn this thing into a positive? Yeah. So let's, let's say that I was moderately persuasive here in convincing people that a lot of what they study, they forget anyway. <laughs> and, and that the summer slide we all panic about is not just a summer thing, but they never really learned it in the first place. You know, you shove it into short-term memory, take a test, some have expansive short-term memories and quick recall. They're great test takers. They look smart. Others aren't. They're poor test takers. We think they're dumb. Often that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So let's say people sort of take a big sigh of relief breath and say, you know, absent the fundamental building block skills, like every kid should be encouraged and joyful reader. Kids should be good at figuring out how to access resources so they can teach themselves things. Kids should be fluent with basic low-level math. I mean, I sort of see there's a layer there. But how do, how do we make the most of it? You know, here's one of the things. I, I, I had this discussion this past week with some friends, and they were, our kids are cooped up, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, you know, we're building an addition on our house. We're going to try to get them involved with that. They don't really want to. You know, like, you know, but I, I said, like, imagine if you had them watch this old house and had them do, you know, a YouTube series, you know, for renovations, you know, something that makes it real and interesting for kids, you know, a, a, a different thing. You know, like I'm a big advocate. And this is, I think, you're, you'll, you'll be on this, you know, maybe already way ahead of me on it, but, but your listenership, I think, will, will really get up on this issue is there's this vast array of uh, digital economy skills that I write about in my book that kids can develop at a very early age. And so imagine if you said, what the heck do we do? I mean, like, we're, we're stranded, we're home, the kid hates being on Zoom, nothing's worth working. Uh, I've got the courage to say, what the hell? I don't care. You know, let's redirect my kid. Find, you know, like I would say, like, how about this? Find something the kid cares about in their community. And if 
have them, you know, uh, and we could we could probably list fifty things in a community brought to its knees by, knees by the virus. Find a point of interest. Develop a website. You know, teach yourself graphic design and and how to use Squarespace or whatever to design a great website. How to uh, you know do let's just say where can you go for testing within 10 miles of where we live? What's really going on in the field of testing? You know, what do we know about the accuracy of those tests? How fast are the results? You know, checking with people, you know, like there are a million things kids, if they get going on it, can invent. But have a focus on, they're going to get good at website design. They're going to get good at graphic design. They're going to do some video interviews, even if by Zoom, and learn how to edit videos. They're going to use social media to promote this. And something they find relevant that's a contribution to their community, get good at those. And the thing that I find so amazing is that, you know, I'll point out that a kid that's good at those things, if they go to Upwork, they could probably make, even if they're 14, 15 years, there's child labor laws that kick in at some point, but they can make 30, 40 bucks an hour. You know, I mean, they're often running in life, whether they go to college or not. And yet, I call it not the low-hanging fruit of education opportunities. I call it the low-hanging orchard. And these digital media things, I write about in my book where, um, and just to bring it, make it tangible, where this school uh, in uh, YMI in Western Oahu, it's one of the poorest areas across the islands of Hawaii. This really great woman named Candy Suiza started this digital media initiative. These are kids that normally wouldn't get to the end of high school. They just did a big public school, normal school, did a big new building there. 350 kids for the digital media program. Google Digital Sea Rider. Look at some of the videos these kids produce. And these kids without college are freelancers, starting small consulting firms, doing video editing remotely. You know, they're off and running with a great career life. And so if somebody said to me, what the heck do I do? I'd say, how about this, right? How about this? Consider the fact that most kids after 12, 16 years even of school have not gotten good at anything the adult world really values. How many college graduates, day one, you've hired a bunch of them, right? Day one, if you said, what are you so good at that you can instantly plug in and help us? I mean, that's rare, right? 16 years of school and it's not happening. How about make that happen now? And, and how about figuring out really creative ways for the kids that don't have, in my book I write about, we're doing a piece now that we call kind of the, I call it our SOS video, we'll come up with a better name, but we're interviewing people a lot from my book to try to give schools some guidance at the start of the school year for what you can do. But we featured this incredible guy who at the time was superintendent of the Coachella district down, not Palm Springs Rich, but near Palm Springs, incredibly poor. And Daryl, Daryl Adams is the name. You know, when, first thing he told me is I run the second poorest district in the country. And I said, well, what's the poorest? And he said, I don't know. And I'm sure glad I'm not running that one. And but, but Christopher, <laughs> he, he did this program called Wi-Fi on Wheels, where they put routers on school buses and parked the school buses in the low-income areas so that kids and their families have access to Wi-Fi. And, you know, so like, what, wow, are what a great idea. What a great idea. You know, and so what if we said to all the people kind of on the beach, you know, at our tech company, I mean, Google's got this big thing where they're trying to do these balloons. What if we just said, Google, you know, like, help us. 
how do we get Wi-Fi access to every disadvantaged kid in the country, like ASAP? And if we had a White House that showed any degree of leadership and a, and a Department of Education that showed any degree of leadership, which we don't. But if they just called in the cellular companies and the tech companies and said, code red crisis, there are X million kids who are shut off from the digital resource world. We're fixing that by Labor Day. Get it done. You know, let's have a World War II mentality. Get it fucking done. And, and, and we'll fund it. You know, and, and it's not free, but it sure beats a lot of the priorities we saw in the CARES Act. You know, and so, and then supposing we took these Wi-Fi on wheels, but said mentor on wheels. And we took all these college kids that have nothing to do and said, you're going to be, you know, the modern day, you know, education Peace Corps. And we're going to put you out there in these communities and you're going to do pop-up consulting with these kids on doing these projects. And you're like, I mean, you know, there's some bold, really great things that if somebody, I mean, you know, I, I don't have the ability to give a talk and have the nation listen, you know, like you're kind to have me on the show. But I mean, if somebody. You do now. <laughs> yeah. You know, if somebody just said, damn it all. You know, this is, you know, what do we know now? We know in a way we should have always known. The teacher's jobs are incredibly demanding. We know now in a way we should have always known that we can't have a functioning economy and society without our schools. You know, so if in fact we want to start getting back to normal, how do we start to elevate what's going on in our schools, support them financially, help them pivot to things that are better learning experiences for their kids, close the gap between the rich kids and the poor kids. And I think, you know, done right, this would be the perfect time to do that. But what do we see? I mean, we're, we are so far from doing this right. It makes me, I, I cry at night, you know, when, when you look at schools being, many schools are already supposed to be open now, but, you know, we're right at school reopening time and we still have, you know, Congress debating what they're going to do. And, you know, a president saying, hey, by the way, I failed in everything I was supposed to do. The coronavirus is still surging in most places of the country. But boy, even though I've said for three and a half years that every education issue is local, Time for me to make this really political and say every school has to reopen. And if it doesn't, we'll yank the funding for the most disadvantaged kids in America. I mean, how's that? You know, like, and I, I hope it comes across that I say that with a degree of outrage because that's exactly how I feel. You know, it's like it is the cornerstone of our democracy. Giving kids, you know, across America a fair shot at life. Is the single most important thing we can do to make sure we have a functioning civil society, and we're fucking it up. A Amen, hallelujah. Um, and to put an additional point on it, not too long ago we had David Crane on from Govern for California, and boy did he give me an education about a lot of things. And one of them was he said um, we have been defunding schools for a very long time, and of course the schools that are getting fucked the most are the schools that serve uh, the most underserved parts of our country. And so, yes, I find it very outrageous that anybody would be talking about taking money away from schools at this moment in time when they're all struggling to figure out what, what does school even mean now? Yeah. And, you know, most people have heard of Brown versus Board of Education as a Supreme Court ruling. Most, maybe, maybe fewer than I'd hope. 
Um, but <laughs> well, how many branches of government are there? Again? <laughs> how many, I mean, like, <laughs> some prime number. Um, you know, but how many have heard of Rodriguez versus San Antonio? And this was a 1973 Supreme Court ruling where the Supreme Court said, hey, it's just fine if most of the money funding our schools comes from local property taxes. So basically, it's just fine if the rich communities have far more resources to educate their kids than the poor communities. And so you see this confluence, right, of, you know, an urgency, I think, of getting the funding models right for our schools, you know, pay our teachers what they deserve, and reimagine what our kids are learning in our schools. Because if, in fact, education continues to just tilt an already tilted playing field more toward the rich, primarily more toward the white, but not all white, um, then you see, you know, that's where you see, you know, the Black Lives Matter. You see the, the differential impact of COVID on the black and brown families, on the low-income families. You see the educational opportunities that the affluent patch together and make it work, but the, the, the family struggling to get by are, are screwed. And at some point, you just say, this doesn't hold together. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, trying to make things tangible that just, you know, pisses me off, and maybe it pisses a lot of other people off, I doubt it. But, you know, if you look at the CARES Act, right, we've got to rescue the economy. So we, we shovel $2 trillion out the door. And, you know, that's a lot of money. The total in CARES Act for our schools, all of our K-12 schools in America, the total was $13.5 billion less than 0.7% of the $2 trillion. The total, and it's a bit of a fuzzy number, but it's at least $135 billion of tax relief for the richest Americans when it comes to the write-offs of, of uh, net operating losses against you know, non-operating loss gains. And so people making a million bucks a year are getting immediate relief in aggregate of $135 billion or more in the CARES Act. 10x what all of our schools are getting. And I don't know about you, but, you know, like, and I'm not in venture anymore, but I, I know a lot of people in venture. I mean, when you're making a million dollars more, and this is more toward real estate development and hedge funds than it is venture, so it's on the top over, but you're making a million bucks or more a year of current, you're sitting on a big, fat history of and future of capital gains, you're probably not the highest priority tax required, you know, tax break, you know, priority in our country. And, and they get that group of, of you know, they, they estimate it's like 43,000 super rich people will get an aggregate, 130 million, 43,000. You know, there's a joint committee on taxation, which is sort of an unbiased source of analysis. And, you know, it's, it's not a hard number, but it's pretty, every, everybody's sort of pointing to the same thing. So maybe roughly 40, 45,000 super well-off of, uh, Americans. And what, just so that I'm clear, what's the line to be considered in or out of that 43, 45,000 in terms of income or net worth? Do you know, Ted? They say, they say 80% of them make a million a year W-2 anyway. And, um, but it lets you carry, you know, the previous cap on these operating losses was a half a million bucks and they just blew that cap away. So you get to gush it all in. And, and so they think in 2020, the estimates are maybe 90 billion and over the lifetime of this. 135 to 190 billion, I, you know, and it's complicated. So it's hard. I mean, even I, I've read everything I can about it. And I'm, I'm not as precise in explaining it as I'd like to be, but, but fundamentally these generally kind of bleeding out these operating losses takes a long time and some of them just go away. And now it's just like, take them all at once. And it's like, 
how can it be that 10x the money is going to people making a million dollars a year or more that are going to all of our schools? I mean, like, I'm a venture guy. Like, I benefited from a lot of the great things. But, but at a certain point, I think we have a responsibility to say, no. You know, I feel like if, if we're on the Titanic and a bunch of us are really powerful swimmers, maybe the Titanic's the wrong example, you're not going to swim to safety there, but, but we shouldn't be the first ones in the lifeboat throwing out, right. you know, poor mothers and kids. You know, it's like, let's step back and say, who really did, who's desperately in need of this relief? And, and that's not what's happening. And so now we're right up against the start of the school year. Schools are, they're local, as Crane pointed out, their local and state budgets have been hammered. So many of them are facing budget shortfalls. And then we're giving them this huge pile of extra things. And here's what's happening, right? So many of our best in education are saying, you know, maybe it's time to retire. Like, yeah. it's mission impossible. They keep telling me do more and more and less and less. Well, and of course, their health is potentially at risk yeah, as well, right, right? Right. Yeah. And as I said, it's, it's sort of very discouraging when you're on the front line and you started to, to make the very important point is that maybe the number of eight-year-olds that, that are dying, you know, that have, you know, only a tiny number have died. We talked before, we were uncertain about the long-term impact, but I mean, you're a, an older teacher right. or you're a younger teacher, but you're living now with your your parent. I mean, like, there's just like these these tentacles go deep, and and when people put loved ones' lives at risk or their own life at risk, you know, it's like, wait, you know, like at least treat me with some respect. And we don't, I think, bring nearly enough trust and respect to our teachers, and we don't pay them what they deserve, honestly. And um, and then we wonder why we've got a shortage of teachers, like. Who would want to be a public school elementary teacher, a new public school elementary teacher starting in August of 2020? <laughs> you know, it's hazardous duty pay, you know, and they're not the only ones, right? I mean, you know, we do it to the military and then we screw over the VA and don't give them proper. It's just again and again. And I, I feel terrible because I sound like I'm not a Bernie Sanders populist. Are you a venture capitalist turned socialist? Is that what's going on here, Ted? <laughs> I, I, I am. I am a pragmatic centrist looking for bold, bold and pragmatic. I think aren't mutually exclusive. And you know, and, and like those, that wing of things just railed on. You know, like it's just so anybody who worked in a healthcare company was a greedy, whatever. And and I think a lot of those people are working seven day weeks and are going to come up with the stuff that finally gets through this. All that said. But there's just like it just we just can't keep going where the people who are on the firing line are getting the worst deals. And you know, like, wait a minute, there's just a, a level of, you know, if you're a big pig, that doesn't mean you should should push yourself to the front of the trough and push aside the, the smaller pigs. I mean, and I do feel like that's going on. I mean, I I was on the National Venture Capital Association for four years on that board. And I, I think it's probably fair to say, and I think people would agree that I was the, the one person saying there are aspects of the capital gains tax that don't make sense. You know, uh, you know, and that's a longer discussion we could get into it. But, but a lot of the people that are getting really attractive, you know, tax rates are making now in venture, you know, five, $10 million a year guaranteed current. Right. And it's like, wait, you know, like, wait a minute. You're like, you know, do you really want to, to pass the hat for lobbying dollars to make sure that doesn't get rethought in any way? 
And I'm all for, by the way, you know, thresholds and making sure the employees, as you know, it's like we screw over employees with these startups with with the fact that they are generally paying ordinary income with the way stock options are structured. But we can't keep, even in that narrow sector of the startup world, you know, we, we sort of give a bad deal to the to the employees that join and give a great deal to the founders and then sort of say, oh, that's okay. You know, like, well, wait a minute. Like, well, you and I could have a fair. whole conversation you and I could have a whole conversation around how, in my opinion, the stock option had a material impact on creating Silicon Valley and how over the last 25 years, what, what, what was generally believed to be a good deal and was certainly a good deal for me as a young kid coming up has turned into a fuck job, but that's a whole, that's a whole other conversation. So I just want to make sure um, I really get it. If I'm an educator or if I'm a parent and I'm grappling with, uh, a very uh, spooky set of realities here. What I'm hearing from Ted, who's studied the best schools in the country and is this VC business guy turned into this education advocate guy, is focus more on are they learning and less on what they're learning. Try to do uh, things that tap into intrinsic motivation. And the thing I was trying to unpack in my mind, and this is something I really want to sort of See, see if I'm, I'm interpreting what you're saying right. When you gave the example of sort of building a website that tracked COVID in the neighborhood or, or whatever the thing was, what I heard you say is you see kids thrive when they're do, working on some kind of a project that has some kind of intrinsic meaning to them, that's creative, has some complexity to it, requires multidisciplines. So going to have a little bit of a technical, a little bit of a design, a little bit of a marketing, a little bit of a data analysis and math, et cetera, et cetera, in the example that you used. Um, And so is that really maybe where I should be thinking, how do I, as a parent, how do I, as an educator, use Zoom, use the new paradigm that we're, that's being thrust upon us here to tilt more in, in this kind of direction, this kind of project, intrinsic, multidisciplinary, kind of collaborative uh, thing that has some kind of an outcome that the kids can point to. Oh, and then one other thing I thought I heard you say, have some connection to things that are valued in, I think you used the term, the adult world. But I just, yeah. so did I synthesize that close? Yeah, way better than I could. And, <laughs> and but, but the other thing is as well is it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And so you're going to see a lot of people obsessing about, you know, like, being on Zoom, getting those lectures, doing what the normal stuff is. And and if I were if I were like in a community where people were a bit risk averse, because everybody in this environment tends to be pushed more towards the risk averse side of themselves, I'd say, hey, you know, like there are a lot of schools, not a few, but this actually is, you know, something that's got some real traction of, you know, this idea of genius time, you know, which sort of came from some of the great things with Google, where they give you know, twenty percent time to kind of work on whatever you want to. So Hey, why don't we say one day a week is totally there for students to to find something they're interested in and start running with it? And it, you know, like that's a lot less threatening. But then let's check in three weeks later and see which days are going well and which days are World War Three with <laughs> constant battles and everybody ending up hating each other. And you know, because the teachers don't like. I, I often say that distance learning is an oxymoron, right? You know, it's like. Teachers don't want to be talking at students over Zoom. That's no fun. Students don't want to be on the other side. You know, it's like nobody's really saying, oh, my gosh, this is great. You know, it's, it's 
generally viewed, I think, as, as pretty unproductive to counterproductive. So maybe you just start with, hey, day a week, you know, and I actually think if you ask a kid, what would you love to do? And they don't know. That's actually a great point of departure for getting that kid back on track. Mm. Because, you know, if a kid gets through the end of their school process, whether it's after 12 years or 14 years or 16 years, and they still don't know what they want to do or can't even think of something they'd love to do or have lost their willingness or interest to wade into something ambiguous or, you know, do what all the people, you know, like it, it runs through your, your, your whole theme with this great podcast series is come up, you know, what's your different, you know, like what's something bold you are itching to do. And if a kid says nothing, I think we've let that kid down. And so this mm-hmm. is a great time to say, no, 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 that's not an okay answer. And you wouldn't have given that answer when you were five years old. So think more. What's something you really want to do? And also, is it is this a time for experimentation? If I, yep. let's say I'm not being cheeky, let's say I really am a, I don't know, I'll pick an age, a 13, 14 year old that doesn't know the answer to that question, and I'm not being silly or cheeky or whatever about it. Isn't this a powerful time to say to that younger person, "Hey, well, this is a cool time to try shit." Yep. So what about yeah. this and what about that you know what about music and creative and and what about writing and what about math and what about whatever it is right there's a whole series of things we can go try because uh sooner or later if you figure out enough things that you're not attracted to what you are attracted to becomes a lot clearer yes yeah and i think it's important you know just we actually have this resource called the innovation playlist and i could i could send you the link if you want to put it you know, on your site, but please do but one, one of the things that we captured as a school, which, which would make a lot of people nervous, but, but it worked incredibly well as they call it DSC, do something cool. So it is wide open unstructured. They just say to kids on a Wednesday afternoon, you've got Thursday, Friday over the weekend, but do something you've been itching to do that you just think would be cool, but come in Monday and be prepared to present what you did to your classmates and to your teachers. And it's very motivating for students if they know their friends are going to be looking at what they did. And they talk about, you know, one kid wrote a book that got published and one, you know, several write songs and several, and, you know, like, I would say if you do that from time to time, don't dwell on, you know, like it's a song. I mean, like a song can be a window, just as we were talking before about rap music, do something cool. That's wide open and structured. How far back will a kid be set if you if you say we'll take two days and a weekend to let them do that? I mean, you're not betting the kid's future on that. But others are more, you know, focused on an issue. You know, like I love, you know, like history. You know, like but but when I interview most kids who have taken history and I say, What'd you learn in history class? They'll say, I learned I never want to take history again. Yeah, that's like the ultimate in heartbreak. But you know, the interesting thing, I hate to interrupt you, but look at how popular Hamilton is. Yeah. Now, nobody said to the kids, hey, we're going to talk about American history today. They said, there's this great new show called Hamilton, and it's interesting because, and I I don't know, you tell me, but uh, I don't track these things super closely. That thing looks like a smash hit. Everywhere I turn around, there's a Hamilton something. It's a juggernaut. And, you know, but but think about this, right? If somebody, I mean, like, and I love my venture friends. But if somebody had come to them and said, I want to do a Broadway musical on Alexander Hamilton tied to primarily rap music, what do you think? <laughs> I think we'd all say, you got to be kidding. That will never go anywhere. You know, right. like, do, do ABBA. 
And, uh, you know, and, and yet that bold, you know, we, we found this is sort of relevant to a lot of different circles of life. But, but we at one point a few years ago, I'm not active with my firm anymore, but we started in 1970. So we have a pretty, pretty deep set of portfolio companies. And somebody, it wasn't me, had the idea of let's look at our investment, historical investments, the ones that we were all there and remembered, and sort of look at two things. One was how successful the investment was. Well, fine. The other one was, was there, what, to what extent was there consensus in the partnership when we made the investment? And I mm. think the working assumption was that the best investments everybody was enthused about, and then it would kind of taper down on the ones that were like people saying, I'd be embarrassed if we put our name on that, would be mediocre, and, and a lot of the failures. Well, you know, it was exactly the opposite, right? Right. Our very best investments were when at least one person in the partnership said, that's the stupidest thing I've never heard. I'm embarrassed. And and somebody else said, fair enough, but I'm putting my reputation by, I mean, you know, fire me if this is a total dud, but I believe this is right. And you realize those those great ideas always fly in the face of kind of what everybody thinks is, is the right way to do it. And so why don't we encourage our kids in that front? You're like, if you've got an idea and it seems like kind of a wacky idea, it won't work, instead of adults micromanaging it and saying, oh, no, no, that's, no, 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 don't, don't do that. You know, like, here's something that's more, you know, more likely to, you know, to work out. We just hey, go with it. Give it a shot. Just as you said, give it a shot. And three days from now, let's revisit what's working, what isn't, but let's see what you can do. And, Honestly, somebody somewhere, I, I don't know uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, but I know his dad. And more credit to Luis, because somewhere along the line, Lin-Manuel said to his father, I'm thinking about doing this. And his father, instead of saying, I would be embarrassed if my son did this, <laughs> said, well, go for it. You're like, who the hell knows? This might be interesting. And, and you just realize that if these kids, these kids do, I mean, fundamentally, you know, either you believe in human potential or you don't. And mm. and I believe in human potential. And I believe these kids have interest. And and I get really excited when I spend time with four and five year olds because they're bubbling over with interest. And when people tell me, oh, you know, but you can't let a kid run with their interests. We need to put down these three, four, eight, twelve, sixteen years of content acquisition before they can actually do something with it. I say, you know, here, let's hang out with these two five-year-olds that love dinosaurs, and let's talk about content acquisition. Because <laughs> these kids can spell stegosaurus. You know, like these kids know everything about action heroes or insects or snakes or sports figures, whatever. They are content vacuum cleaners. And so you realize, like, do we feel like the most important thing? And this is so true today. And I think it's a fundamental essential issue is do we care most? about requiring our kids to learn something that some committee has decided is the right thing? Or do we care most about whether our kids are learning? Do we yeah. look for books or types of things they want to read that play to their interest and, and, and say, great, this kid just read 20 books on soccer. You know, or do we say, no, you got to read, uh, you know, whatever, some book. To whatever. Some, some, yeah. And you, and you just say, well, no, you know, like, wait, it seems like there's an awful lot of upside, particularly in this environment, of going with what the kid wants to do and try to broaden it, not just let it be any old thing. And it's why back to the, the whole thing of communicating to your classmates and teachers what you did. It means that if a kid says, oh, 
do something cool. I'm going to spend the next four days just playing video games. So, you know, what are you going to tell your classmates on Monday? Well, uh, that I play video games. Okay, and that's not really consistent with the spirit here. But maybe, maybe some kid, you know, going back in time says, oh, I've got this idea. I'm going to do videos of kids playing video games and then get other people to watch people play video games, which would be probably viewed as this idea as dumb as Hamilton but turned into Twitch, right? Which was like, honestly, if somebody's adventure guy said, we're going to do, we're going to let people watch other people play video games. I'd say, oh, you know, you're just doubling down on the biggest waste of time I could imagine. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. Well, <laughs> it was a good idea. It reminds me, I, I, I'm forgetting his name now, um, but the founder of Masterclass, you know, I, I think they've done such oh, an yeah. amazing job. And he was talking about the early days of the idea um, uh, I was listening to this on, I think it was the Wall Street Journal's website. Anyway, what he said was, the stupider people think your ideas and the more people disagree with it, the more he likes the idea. And he said, look, nobody in himself and, and uh, his co-founders had any background in online education or any of that. They just thought, you know what? Um, if you If you were going to learn basketball... Wouldn't it be cool to learn how to throw a three-point shot by being taught by Steph Curry? And they're like, yeah. oh, well, and everybody said, well, you're not going to get Malcolm Gladwell and Steph Curry and Margaret Atwood and on and on and on and Aaron Zorkin and all these unbelievable people to teach a class in the thing that they do. That's you. You can't do. That's not going to happen. Well, yeah. No. An honor. And so I just love that, you know, the stupider the idea and the more people disagree with it, maybe, maybe the, maybe the greater the idea. <laughs> maybe the greater the idea. And to sort of bring it full circle, I'll contrast two things, right? You know, lots of young adults, and this is college seniors through early, mid-20s, late-20s, I, I have to say we've sort of taken the audacity out of them. You know, I mm-hmm. call them the go-fetch-a-dog-biscuit kids, you know, like, Tell me what I got to do to get an A. And, you know, I'll interview kids and I, uh, college seniors, and I'll say, so what are you going to do next? And, and generally it's, uh, I'm going to sign up for a bunch of interviews in career services office and hope I get a job. And my backup plan is to get a master's degree. And, and, and I'll say, well, you know, like, I'm just curious. Like, if you want to create a career path going forward right now, what would you do? And not only do they not have any ideas, but they look at me like, wait a minute, you mean that's an option? You mean I could actually create a career path now? And, and you know, I'm talking to the right guy about this, right? I mean, it, 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 I gather you blew off college entirely and, and just sort of said, and those are the people I love, right? The people that have the self-confidence to say, I don't need some credential. I, I believe in myself. The people that yes. know they can learn how to learn. The people that just say, I, I see it for what it is and it's not for me. I mean, those are the people that change the world, but we largely purge that out of people, but um, out of our students. But I mean, now, I mean, I'll give you an example, right? Uh, you know, we were talking about things kids could do. Oh, how about this? What if the, if the adults in the school turned it over to middle and high school kids and said, invent learning, like, tell us how you want to learn this school year. Here yeah. are the constraints. You know, you can be in school at most a couple of days a week or not at all. You know, Clearly, you need interaction, support with adults, the need to draw on each other for community. Uh, and then tell us, you know, like work alone or in small teams and make pitches on what will work. How do you want to learn? A- agency. Yeah. Let, the, let you know, like, them decide. Guess what? 
And if the students say, here's what we want to do, and we do it, they're going to feel that much more motivated to make it succeed. And you know, it's like, instead, we're going to, you know, listen to Betsy DeBoss. I mean, really? <laughs> All right, Ted, clearly uh, I could talk to you about a lot of things for a very long time. Um, is there anything else that you would like to touch on before we wrap? Well, I would just say this. I mean, in, in sort of a recurring theme for me is a lot of people say, how'd you get so interested in education? And I say, you know, I, I am, but what I'm really interested in is democracy. I'm interested in a functioning civil society. And we're in this extraordinary time where, where my, my metaphor for it is, it's like everything in America has been put under a 10X magnifying glass. The inequities have been blown up by 10X. Our ability to see them has been blown up by 10X. And ultimately, I think education gives you a great perspective on kids that can get by and do well versus kids that are screwed over, what we're doing to people that perform an essential role in our society, like teachers, administrators. And so I think we're, it's kind of a reckoning time, right? And, and I mm -hmm. feel like the next six months is going to tell us an enormous amount. You know, we either get this right, which I hope we do, and I push for, and I what I wake up thinking about and go to bed thinking about, or we're going to keep shoveling $135 billion out the door to people making a million dollars a year or more and tell our schools, we're cutting your budget, but do the impossible. And if you don't do the impossible, we'll yank even more money out. And by the way, that money's tied to the kids that need the most help. I mean, I don't know. How's that in? You know, and I feel like if, if too many Americans come through a system and they're, they're kind of, they feel adrift they feel like they didn't they didn't get good in 12 14 16 years of school they've got a pile of student loan debt or they're looked down on because they didn't get a college degree but they don't have a skill or proficiency and their mindset's largely been shaped in a way that's not helpful you know you can only pile up so many adults like that on the sidelines before you know bad things happen to democracy and so you know maybe maybe we'll look back and say this was the wake-up call we needed that's what I hope, but maybe we don't. <laughs> That's what makes it so interesting, right? And, and I think we'll know a lot in the next six months. Not everything, but we'll know a lot. Well, Ted, you're amazing. I really, really appreciate you coming back and sharing your thoughts, given everything that's going on on and the transformation that's going to happen here or that is happening in front of our eyes in education. Um, so thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and right back to you. I mean, your voice is in my head because I've listened to you a lot. But you you have the most interesting, you know, I'll, I'll be the outlier here. You know, like people listen and say, yeah, everybody else he has on is interesting. except the guy that's observing that you have interesting people on. He's not so interesting. <laughs> but you get, to, you you show what engaged conversation can be. You, you ask, you know, you ask great questions, which is an incredible skill that we could perfect during this pandemic with our kids. But most high school kids, you know, the question I hear them ask is, will this be on the test? And so it's, I'm grateful. I think it's inspiring. I think it elevates the discussion. And I always get off of, of my hour, hour and a half, whatever long, you know, it's like this, okay, I'm taking this on. I'm going to go for a long walk. And then I say, man, I learned a lot from that. I'm like energized. This gives me a, a, a look at what could be done going forward. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And actually, if I could steal you for just a sec on this. There's sort of been this ongoing aha that I've had as a result of starting to podcast, um, which is, A, 
there was a point in history where being part of being um, an interesting, dare I say, even important person was being a good conversationalist. That we there were some people who cared about long before smartphones and anything like that, two people sitting down, looking each other in the eye and having a back and forth from a place of curiosity and interest. Um, and of course, we all have our opinions and beliefs and so forth. And so there can be nudging and pushing back and disagreement, which is all fine. But this notion that part of what makes a successful human being is the ability to have um, a real conversation. And then the other aha for me is, and maybe it's because of my dyslexia and dyscalculia, and I call it all dysphuclia. Um, <laughs> but I learn through listening, and I learn through conversation. I learn what you're thinking and what you've learned. I also learn more about what I think and learn when I have to sort of both articulate something to you about what I feel or think, or I try to also digest it and play it back to you to see if I'm, you know, if I'm picking up what you're putting down. And so I guess that leads, all that leads me to a question. It's why I love podcasting so much. Is it possible we're going to have part of this education breakthrough through an understanding that many of us learn through conversation? Yeah. And, and to make it totally full circle, imagine you have kids stuck at home bored, not feeling at all interested in being on Zoom. And you said, on a topic you care about, create a podcast series, find people to interview and interview them, come up with your own thought-provoking questions, try to get other people to watch or listen to it, get their feedback, and see what you can come up with. I mean, how much would a kid learn from that? And, and be supportive and wide open on what they pick as their theme or topic. Maybe even say it could be a YouTube series or something. And you just say, would kids be interested in that? Oh, my gosh. I think not every, but many, many kids would find it really interesting. Could you unleash a lot of creativity and curiosity in that? Uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure when you took this on, you had no idea where it was going to go. It's like, I'll give it a shot. You know, like that's the same sort of sense of wading into ambiguity and saying, I'll figure it out. I've got confidence. I can figure it out as I go. Yep. But, but if you wrote a book about this in retrospect and said, how much did I learn from organizing this podcast series? I mean, off the charts, right? Off the charts. Right. But how much did people around you learn from your podcast series? How big an effect you had? And so that's the kind of learning I advocate for. It's something that the student cares about, something that helps them develop skills that matter. And you're, you know, and you and your team, it's technology skills, it's it's language arts skills, it's curiosity and engagement skills. I mean, it's a whole set of things we know. Even if you stop doing a podcast tomorrow, you would have learned so many important things that would be whatever the next thing you chose to take on, you'd be way more effective in moving in that direction. And, and getting that sense of fulfillment and purpose from doing something that in some ways affected reach the world around you. And so, yes. yeah, you would kind of love a kid to do a podcast on. I'm going to do a podcast on life as a healthcare worker in my community, or I'm going to do a podcast on people going to food banks to get food. That's what most parents would say is great. That's what I probably would have hoped my kids would do. They would have probably said, I don't want to do that, right? I'm going to do a podcast on who 
would get back to Jamal Bowman and rap. And I'm going to, but I'm, but I would say, okay. Uh, you know, the podcast I want right now. And I, I thought about starting it. I just, I'm not in a place where I have the time to do this. I thought, what's one of the greatest things that's happened since COVID? And in my opinion, they are Karen videos on the internet. <laughs> I, I love them. I think they're yeah. great. And by the way, there's clearly male Karens as well as female Karens. The male ones are in some cases funny. what the male name is. So, yeah. No, they're, they're just so, calling them Karens, which I think makes it even better. It's like, oh, this better. dude's a Karen. Yeah. Anyway, here's my idea. The first Karen video review podcast slash YouTube channel. Unbelievable. Wouldn't I be- would love to see somebody yeah. funny or yeah. maybe a couple of funny people do a, like a movie review or a book review. Now, why is this a great Karen video? <laughs> yeah, no question. And you know, you look at that. And, th- and the thing is, that as great an idea as that is, and it's a great idea. <laughs> you know, if we, t- if we took kids in middle and high school and really gave them a chance to think, they come up with a bunch of different things, every bit as compelling and interesting as that, you know, and, and back to what, you know, like, it's, it's like, don't obsess about the fact that if, you know, that, that Karen video would be this incredible window into all these divides in our country, right? I mean, it, it would be funny. It would be interesting. It would generate. It could have social commentary. Impact. Yeah. You know, but do it well, right? Do it well. That's, that's a key thing with all these people that the, the groups I love that I write about celebrate is they let students take on these projects, but they hold them to a high standard. You know, if it's a half-assed project, that's not okay. And yes. by the way, you're going to get feedback from your friends. And if it's not good, they're going to be telling you because one of the things we want is our your peers to be good at critiquing you. And it's yes. the ultimate form of accountability. So there you go. You know, like, oh, oh my gosh, you know, whether it's a long-form podcast or a story core, you know, like a million different things. But man, you know, would you be kicking yourself in June if you unleashed a lot of kids on a challenge like that, come up with a podcast series that you'd be excited to do and then do what it takes to make it really good. And we're going to be looking at the quality of it and how many other people you got to actually listen to it regularly. Cause that in some ways is a good test of whether it's effective or not. I don't know. You know, it, it's just right there. It's just right there. Well, Ted, I, I, I really appreciate your thinking, as I said, and, and I think it's a powerful thing if we can, uh, look, I know it's tough, uh, and I in no means want to put, uh, by no means want to put whipped cream on dog shit. However, maybe there is a way some of us can look at this as an opportunity to be super creative and accelerate uh, some of the positive changes um, that we're looking for in education. And uh, I really hope you, I really thank you for helping to show that way. And, and it's not speculative. I mean, there are people doing this. and. Yes. And, and they're feeling a, just an incredible sense of progress. And so I'll send you the links. I mean, we, we've got this video that will be out sometime in September that may do it. I, I do see behind you, and I love Leonard Cohen. And so you're like, I, like the, you know, that's no way to say goodbye. It's in my mind here. So we've got a good way to say goodbye. <laughs> but I just, well, why don't I we just say farewell for now yeah. <laughs> and, and not we'll goodbye. Yeah, thank you so much ted you're awesome and please send the links asap uh we're going to rush this episode out given how timely it is excellent thanks take care thanks you too yeah bye-bye well there he is the legendary ted dintersmith 
And uh, check out his great book, What School Could Be, wherever you get legendary books. I also want to thank my good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. If you want to make a difference in helping to spark entrepreneurship and self-reliance at this uh, challenging time for so many of us, check out OneLifeFullyLive.org. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for the better part of 20 years. They want to help you conquer your category. Visit atre.net. My friends at bottleneck.online want to help scale you because they are the distant assistant company. They've been physically distancing before physically distancing was a thing. Check them out, bottleneck.online. And do your folks think your company is awesome? Well, if they do, that's great. And if they don't, regardless... How to become employee awesome is through Socrates.ai. Socrates is the leading digital conversation hub. And listen, right now, being in communication with your employees, being able to answer critical HR uh, employee-related questions has never been more important. Imagine being able to text or talk any question to your company and get an answer. That's Socrates.ai. Check them out and become employee awesome. All right, I need to remind you that today's podcast is the sole property of the Lodcast. Lod- <laughs> you know, if you're going to have a podcast, learning how to say your own last name might be uh, advantageous. Uh, all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast gets produced and created in a studio that contains nuts. And the uh, creators of this podcast were more than likely uh, consuming libations. Remember, make legendary learning happen. Support your local educators and schools. Buy John's Crazy Socks. Listen to the sage words of Leonard Cohen. Hey, don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Remember, it's illegal to go slow in the left-hand lane in the United States of America. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you dearly. Uh, Love you too, Mom and Dad. Thanks for always being with me. Uh, and uh, hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet. Not so sweet at all. The CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carson, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Uh, please stay legendary. Be good to each other. Peace be with you. And any other great thing you could think of to say at the end of a podcast. And. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Follow your difference.